It's good to be back here with you this afternoon, and we are grateful for everyone being here. This morning I talked for a little bit over time on the subject of heaven. And this evening for a little while, I'm not planning on talking to you over time and hopefully even a little less than that. What I thought I would do is, if you remember this morning, I talked about as the Bible describes those that are going to be in heaven, and when we say heaven, we're not going to be talking about a refurbishing of this earth, because all of those things, the former things, will be passed away, and we're going to look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so the Bible says that those that are going to be in heaven are those that are going to live righteous lives or lives that are filled with right doing. Also, the Bible would say that those that are going to enter into heaven are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I mentioned rather briefly at the latter part of my sermon about encouraging words regarding hanging on until that time. And how awful would it be if we would live our life and go through and endure many things that we endure in this life and then turn our backs on the Lord and then only to find that as miserable as we were in our existence here, that we miss heaven altogether too. And how awful that would be. We are so grateful, though, that we can turn to the Scriptures and find that there are encouraging words. I'm not just talking about emotional pick-me-ups. I'm talking about encouraging words based upon the testimony of men's lives that have lived before you and I ever lived. Encouraging things, encouraging examples, and then over and over again, encouraging words that reestablish the promise that is for everyone that is faithful unto death. So what I thought I would do is turn to the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and I want to just talk to you about a few passages that are found there. Read with me Hebrews chapter 12 and beginning in verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easy, easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you, with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons." Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that, that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. 
Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Finally, one more verse. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What I want to notice, just a couple things by way of an introduction here. First of all, I do believe, and you've heard me say this before, that I believe that the Apostle Paul happens to be the writer of the book of Hebrews. And so for many times I might say that the Hebrew writer, or uh, other times I just simply might say the Apostle Paul. But certainly it fits the language of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And these were Hebrew brethren that were undergoing much persecution. In fact, Paul would basically describe that very thing. They were receiving persecutions in their life that they deemed to be unnecessary. I'll tell you something, it's a hard thing to endure persecutions, even when you got it coming. It's a whole lot harder to deal with things that you don't in your mind feel are right or justifiable. Well, these were Hebrew Christians. I don't know what perhaps how long they were Christians. I don't know specifically those that would have fallen into this category. It is written to Hebrew brethren, but it's also written for our learning, for our admonition, for our instruction too. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing the Hebrew letter, is going to describe some encouraging things to them. And in the first two verses, he gives the example of running in a race. You know, many times the Bible would talk about running in a race or some competitive athletic event. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us an understanding of what it's like. In other words, be encouraged because of the example of those that have gone on before in verse 1. But more than that, more so than that, be extra encouraged because you look to Jesus and know what Jesus did for all mankind. In the beginning of this chapter, we find that the Hebrew writer exhorts these brethren to look to those heroes who have been described in chapter 11 as described as a great cloud of witnesses in verse 1 of chapter 12. You know, you can read various scholars and they will pretty much all come up with the same thing regarding this great cloud of witnesses. The word cloud there means throng. It's talking about the number or this great number that's been talked about in the 11th chapter. Of all of those that would be listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith, those that are great examples, because these were individuals that you and I can look to for encouragement. You know, the Bible does talk about imitating that which is good. The Apostle Paul would say that. So it's a good thing to look to the example of somebody that maybe his faith is stronger than our faith so that we might live the Christian life even better. So this is what he says. He said there's a great throng of witnesses. Now scholars would say that this would be, paint the picture like it's a great big football stadium or a great big uh, like the Colosseum. And all of these witnesses are in the stands and you are running the race. A couple of things. The word witness. The word witness there is in reference to athletic games. And it was customary that if somebody was going to run a race in an athletic game, 
There were specific people that were designated as witnesses. The reason for that is they're going to watch and see that you're keeping the rules. You're not leaving your lane, whatever the rules are. It's kind of like when you're playing golf and nobody's looking. You can kind of caddyshack one out there or just kind of move your ball. But if you're playing competitively with somebody, you're watching each other. There are witnesses to your behavior. Therefore, it keeps you in line. I'm not saying that anybody would cheat on purpose. I'm just giving an illustration. My point is this. The witnesses that Paul's referring to are those that have died and are found in the 11th chapter. But let me just make this point, though. These were individuals that had already died. They were dead. So I don't believe that this great throng of witnesses are really, literally, watching us personally. They've already died. They've already crossed over. I don't believe it's literal that they're literally watching us and cheering us on. I believe it's their testimony of their life, their example that they set. That's what's watching us. That's what's cheering us on. And every single time we get the idea that, no, we can't do it, we can look to those heroes of faith that endured so much more than you and I will ever endure and stay on the path. So I believe that to be figurative and not literal that they are watching us. But, oh, their testimony is watching us, the testimony of their life, the example of faithful ones. One more point about the reason of why I believe that. There's no Bible evidence of somebody that has crossed over to the other side and had dealings with man that are currently still living. In fact, you remember when the rich man and Lazarus died, what did the rich man have? He had no access back home. He had no access back to those that still lived. In fact, what he said is, because he knew he had no access, he made a request, send Lazarus back and warn my brethren. There was no connection. I don't believe that those that have died, like for example, sometimes we, I've heard people say that their dad was really helping them today. Well, you know, my dad helps me too. My dad has been dead for over 10 years. He helps me too. He's not watching me. He can't see me. But my father, every single time I reflect back on something he's taught me or am encouraged by that or in my memory, the testimony of his life, when those things ring in my head, then he's helping me and guiding me along the way. These great heroes, these great characters in the 11th chapter truly are examples for anyone who would live the Christian life. Now notice another word there. It says, lay aside every weight. It was also customary that what they would do is they would remove any articles of clothing that they didn't need. I'm not saying that they stripped themselves down naked. I'm just simply saying whatever garment that they were wearing that was unnecessary, they would take that off. Like a cloak or an overcoat, you wouldn't run a 100-yard dash with a raincoat on. You wouldn't do it. What did he say to do? He said, lay aside every weight. Lay aside every obstacle that's standing in your way of running this race. You know what I thought of? I thought of material possessions. I thought of all the things we enjoy. I thought about distractions. And when I thought of all of that, you know who I thought of? I thought of, in the New Testament, when Jesus was passing through Jericho, I thought of old blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Remember him? He was a beggar, not the one that Jesus healed that was born blind, another man. Bartimaeus was begging. Bartimaeus could hear 
that Jesus Christ was walking by with his disciples and all of those others that were passing by with Jesus. And he calls out to Jesus, but he doesn't just call him Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, thou son of David. You know, you can call Jesus of Nazareth and all you're saying is his name and where he was born, where he was from, nothing else. Those that considered him the carpenter's son didn't think any more than that. Big deal, Jesus of Nazareth. But when they would say, when he said, thou son of David, he was recognizing him as the Messiah. And he calls out to him. You know what the disciples do? The, the disciples try to shut him up a little bit, try to keep, why don't you just keep quiet? Don't bother the master. Now this is a blind man that's a beggar. And the Bible says that that's not enough. He rises up and he says, wait a minute, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. And he tells one of his disciples to go back and get him. And the Bible says that one does. And he comes to him and says, be of good cheer or be glad uh, or be of good comfort, I think the King James Version says, because he will see you now. And the Bible says, this is amazing now, this is a beggar, this was a poor man, and the only thing that this man owned was on his back. You know what he does? He rises up and he takes off his cloak. He took off one of the articles of clothing that was all that he had, and he laid it down. And the reason that he did so, he felt like he needed to move faster to Jesus. He laid aside a weight that was standing in his way to get to Jesus, and he went to Jesus and Jesus says, what will you have me to do? And he says, that I may receive my sight. And he said, go in peace. Thy faith has made you whole. And he received his sight. And then the Bible says, from that point forward, he followed Jesus. My point is this. That's a perfect example of somebody taking something that they even needed I'm not talking, we're not talking about something that we want, something that he needed, something that he was poor, he didn't have any, laid it down because it was going to weigh him down to coming to Christ, coming to Jesus. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. Lay aside every single weight, everything that will stand in your way that would so easily beset us. And then verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in other words, this is a continuation of verse 1. There's a comma there. What are you going to do? You lay aside the weight. Then you look unto Jesus. What is Jesus? He is both the author and he is the finisher of our faith. The word author there really means one who sets the example. And the word finisher means it carries out the idea of he who carries out the plan. That's what Jesus did. Jesus set the example with his life, so look to his example. That's first and foremost. Secondarily, he is worthy of such because he was the finisher. He carried out the plan. But it goes further than that too. And some scholars would say in a secondary measure here that there's something else being said in author and finisher. Author could also mean like someone who starts the race. Now we're talking about a race here. Somebody that starts the race is Jesus Christ. And one enters the path on that race when he's baptized into Christ. Jesus adds him to the church and his sins are washed away. Jesus indeed is the author in that he starts the race. That's true. But he's also the finisher at the finish line in a secondary sense. 
we look unto Jesus. You know what's amazing to me? What's amazing is in any race that you will ever run, it matters how fast you ran the race. If you run in a race and you come in last, you get nothing. If you're slow, you're not rewarded for being slow. In fact, the idea is to be competitive and finish first. You know what's great about running the Christian race? All you got to do is finish. That's it. You don't have to beat somebody to the finish line. All you have to do, because you're not running against anybody else. You are running with Jesus as the standard, and you're running to him with your eye ever fixed on him. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. Who for the joy, what was the joy? The joy that was set before him. The joy was because he was going to be the savior of the world. He was going to be the savior of the world, and that was the joy that was set before him. And because of that, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, there were Christians that were persecuted unnecessarily, and some of these Hebrew Christians, they thought, wait a minute, it's easier back serving under Moses. Maybe I'll just go back in that way. Maybe all the persecution that's coming my way from fellow Jews, if I just turn away from Jesus and go back and serve the other, uh, well, serve my old way, which is serving Moses, then that's quite easier for me. He is telling them, don't make, basically, do not make that choice. Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake, and consider him as he is the great example, and have courage. And then the word faint is there. The word faint means to be discouraged on account of trials. How many people just get discouraged on account of trials and then just quit? You know what I love about this? In just a minute, nothing is going to be said in here about how easy it is. Nothing. Nothing is stated or described as easy. Nothing at all. What he's saying is, fight the fight of faith because, and lay aside the weight and cast aside the sin that so easily beset us. And incidentally, that word sin, I think, is talking specifically, primarily, to the sin of unbelief. But really, it's any sin that would pull us back. Focus on Jesus and all that he did for us. He says, ye have not yet resisted, verse 4, unto blood, striving against sin. You've not even resisted against that. You have, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. You know, this is in reference to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11 and 12 about the idea that don't have disrespect or don't have disdain for the chastening of the Lord. How many here, honestly, like to be rebuked? How many people enjoy getting their wings clipped? Is that fun? How many people enjoy looking to the Bible and realizing we were wrong about something and have to look at it and face the music as it were? Those are not fun things at all. But don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Notice as he continues on. For the Lord loves he that chasteneth and scourgeth every son 
whom he receiveth. You know, when I see the word scourge, I think about Jesus, maybe you do too, but I think about Jesus being bound. I think about Jesus with a bare back and a Roman soldier standing behind him with a cat of nine tails, thrusting it to the back of Jesus and tearing his flesh from his body. That's what I think of when I see the word scourge. Is it saying that God's going to do that to us? What does he mean by that? That word and that phrase, scourge, means this. That God allows us to be afflicted for our training. God allows us to be afflicted because of our training. We're going to find that that's a good thing because he accepts us. It is proof that he accepts us. It is proof that God loves us. God wants us to be better than we are. And so the word scourge, when he says he scourges those that he loves and so forth, those that are his children, it doesn't mean that he's going to beat us to death. It means he allows things to happen that's going to help us in our training. One scholar said a good father has the duty, not the ability, has the duty to correct but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You know, there's another thing that a good parent does, and that is provide education of all kinds for their kids. In fact, that's also something that we consider as a person that has good parents or not. For example, I am involved with a lot of different kids from a lot of different walks of life and so on and so forth. And I have been as a youth coach in many different sports. And what I found is you can tell by looking at a child, you can certainly tell what kind of parents he has. I guarantee you can you can look to see how educated they are or not. You can look and see how well-mannered they are or not. You can look at their behavior and tell whether they've got good, loving parents. You know, when I was a kid, think back now when you were all kids. Maybe you can relate to this. You know what I used to think? When I was little, I used to think that the good parents, my, my, my parents were strict. My dad was strict. I thought, man, the good ones are the ones that let you do stuff. That's not the good ones. The good ones are the ones that don't get, go overboard, as I thought, and get grounded for an entire semester because your grades aren't what they ought to be. I thought, man, that's kind of hard. A good parent would be the ones who just say, just hang in there, do better. No, that's a bad parent. A bad parent is the one that is not interested in the education of their children and is not interested in chastisement of or chastening of their children and correcting them and teaching them and instructing them in the way that they should go. That's a bad parent. Also, those that are neglected are those that we look at as proof of not having a father or a good mother. Now, the King James Version says the word bastards here. And in the New King James, it uses the word illegitimate. Now, the idea isn't that a person that's illegitimate cannot have proper training. What's being said is, you can, if you reject the training of God, if you reject what God has for you, then you can't call yourself his son. Because if you are his son, he corrects you. Don't despise it, according to the book of Proverbs. Listen to it and follow it. 
Furthermore, we've had fathers in our flesh which have corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Again, the connection or the comparison between physical matters and spiritual matters. Now, my kids absolutely have to obey me. They do. They have no choice. They have no choice but to obey Tina and I in our home. There's going to come a day, though, when they're going to be too old for that, and they'll be able to make their own decisions. But, you know, in, in God's Word, it would describe even a babe in Christ all the way up until somebody is able to receive the meat of the Word. Every one of those individuals, regardless of your spiritual age, has the freedom of choice. And that's what he's saying here in comparison or connection. You had physical fathers, and you listened to them. Now you've got the choice. Wouldn't you much rather follow the Spirit, the God, the Father, the God of, the, of spirits, and live? How much greater it is to follow God, and God corrects us because he loves us. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. You know, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture because it's not saying that our fathers chastened us or whipped us because it felt good to them. And incidentally, that's a good reason not to correct your kids when you're mad because you might, it might feel good to correct them. That's not what he's talking about. The own pleasure there, that phrase actually means based upon their best judgment. So your father, your physical father, corrected you based upon his own pleasure, which simply means his best judgment. And we, li and we listened. For our prophet, the Bible says regarding God, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless. Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. The phrase exercise means to take correction and amend your ways. There has to be a result with exercise. There has to be. Sometimes people cheat the exercise and therefore, they get no results. If we, if we cheat the exercise of absorbing the correction of God, then we're not going to have the same result. But if we accept the exercise, the end result is good. The end result when we mend our ways and we change our ways when we've been wrong is only going to benefit us spiritually. Then he says in verse 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble needs. In other words, get yourself out of the spirit of despair. Change your thinking. Change your focus. And make straight paths for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. This is an interesting phrase here that he tells them to make smooth the paths for their feet. This is done by removing every temptation that's in their life. You know, the Bible talks about in the book of Proverbs a very interesting passage on a secret to success regarding temptation. 
And the Bible would say, the wise man of old would say, that when there are those that would entice you, when sinners entice you, consent thou not. In fact, if they're going in this direction, you aren't even to go in that direction. You are to refrain your foot from their path. That means if they're going in that direction, he didn't just say don't do what they do. He says you go that way. You refrain your foot from their path. Why? Because if you refrain your foot from their path, chances are you're not going to fall. But if you go in the way, even though you're trying to be strong and you're trying to go along with the crowd but not sin, oh, be careful because sin is coming and you will fall. And I don't care how strong you think you are. And brother, sister, I can tell you from firsthand experience, that's true. I lived where there was no church for five years. And every weekend had to drive two and a half hours home. I want to talk about, you want to talk about being isolated? And you think, I'm so strong. It wears on you. If you run with people that are going in the wrong direction, sooner or later, their influences will enter into your life. And I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't make any difference how strong you think you are. In some way, large or small, you're going to fall. You're going to stumble at least at some point in time. That's why the wise man of old says, go that way. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Make straight the paths. Make straight for your feet on the path. He didn't say, by the way, make your own path, make your own way, make your own rule. He's saying this. The path has already been established. Jesus set the path and laid it out. He laid the course out for this race. All you got to do is make straight your feet on that path. Don't zigzag and do not. That's number one. Because, by the way, the Bible says, few there be that find it talking about the straight gate and the narrow way which leads to life, okay? Now, you have to stay on that path for your own benefit. But the Hebrew writer says, also for the benefit of somebody else, unless you make the lame to fall, the lame to be dislocated in their life and fall. You know, the word lame there doesn't mean handicapped. The word lame there is in reference to somebody that has less knowledge, less wisdom, and less experience than you do. Now, you know, I tell you, I think one of the saddest things that we find today is when somebody that has been around for a long time and has a great influence over a lot of people, maybe even a preacher, and that man has been going along, has been known for a long time. And you know, if he wants to digress and go off to, the, to some faraway belief in something, the problem isn't that he just made the choice. The problem isn't, well, he's just made his bed, he'll have to sleep in it, there he goes, and it doesn't affect anybody else. That's the problem. It affects everybody else, especially those that have less knowledge, less wisdom, and less experience than he does. That's what's scary. That's what's really sad. If somebody digresses and goes off to some far-out doctrinal belief, what's really sad is all the poor folks that don't know any better and they just follow along. 
You know what the Hebrew writer said a long time ago? He said, make straight the paths of your feet on the path that has already been laid out of the race that Jesus already laid out the course. All you got to do is stay on it. Don't get off of it. And make your path straight. Don't zigzag. Don't veer off. Don't create hurdles. Don't stumble so that the lame will be dislocated and their feet and fall down too. We have the responsibility of not only getting ourselves to heaven, but I have a responsibility for you, and not just because I'm a preacher either. You have the responsibility. I have the responsibility. We all, as Christians, have the responsibility of helping each other get to heaven. Remember, Jesus says that one that would offend one of these little ones, it were better than a millstone were hung around his neck and he would drown at the depths of the sea. Ignorance will not be an excuse either. The Bible says the time of ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The path has been set. We don't do our own way. We don't go our own way. We pursue what the Lord has already set. We must stay on that path, the one that the Savior trod, by re removing all weights all obstacles that would beset us and finish our course. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all those that love his appearing. And then in verse 14, here's some more instruction. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. He said, follow peace. The word follow there means pursue peace. That means we have to work to get along with each other. That tells me that we have to work at that. Notice Romans chapter 12 too. There's another example there of what to do when you're having somebody that's just really cantankerous or being mean or rude or whatever. How is it that you should treat that person? First of all, in Romans chapter 12, let's begin reading in verse 18, please. If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. And by the way, you can't be mad at somebody and then get back at them by going through some phony, well, I'm going to just act like I'm nice to them, because the Bible says you're going to pour the coals on, and they sit back and go, that's it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you don't respond, if you don't retaliate, if you truly are kind to those that mistreat you, and they don't want to make things right, and they don't want to drop the case, and they don't want to feel better about things, they want to be mad, they want to fight, what they want is you to retaliate. If you don't, it's like pouring coals on their head. Have you ever seen somebody like that that wanted to pick a fight, but you wouldn't respond? You know, I... I too many times in my life, I've been the one to respond. It, it just want just want to say it. And sometimes, my desire to respond and defend sometimes causes me to be hateful, and I shouldn't be like that. I think we've all had things in, their, in our life that are weaknesses, 
Remember, I've told you before, grudges aren't one of mine, but responding is. I'm not quick to, I'm not slow to speak. I have to work on it daily. But I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says if somebody is going to mistreat us, be kind. If, he's, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then in verse 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that right there, brother, is one of the hardest things in the world to do. Things to work on for all of us, me too, and especially. We have to work on being at peace. McKnight says, we must earnestly cultivate peace with all men. All men means both Jews and Gentiles alike. All men in our society means those that are members of the body of Christ and those that are outside of the body of Christ. He also says to pursue holiness. This word translated sanctification here, which properly consists, according to, to one scholar, properly consists in being free from lusts that are gratified of the senses and from those bad passions which are of a more spiritual nature, things like anger, things like malice, things like revenge, and things like envy. Mr. McKnight also says, that when these bad passions are indulged, they render the person who indulges them detestable in the eyes of God. Simply put, without holiness, one cannot see the Lord one day. Verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. First of all, in verse 15, he's telling them, carefully observe their own behavior. Also, observe the behavior of somebody else. Why? You've got to protect yourself that you don't be led astray and that you don't fall or be corrupted by vices and errors. But then he says about being a fornicator or profane person. You know what's interesting? Esau was not a fornicator, but he's lumped together with the idea of a fornicator or profane person. And the very next thing that's being said is about Esau. The term profane person means the use of temporal things, the temporal use of sacred things. That's what a profane activity is. Temporal use of a sacred thing. The idea is this. The two brothers. The Bible says that Jacob sawed pottage. Esau goes out. Esau comes back. Esau has the birthright. Esau comes back, and here's something interesting. Do you know that there's no evidence at all in the Bible that says that if he had not eaten that pottage, that red pottage from Jacob, 
There's no Bible evidence that he would have died or starved to death. He just thought he was going to die. He just thought he was going to starve to death. So he comes and says, give me some of that pottage. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. He said, okay, I'll give you my birthright. He said, swear to me that you'll give me the birthright. And he does. He ate the meal. And right after that, he knew I've made a mistake. You know what's interesting is the Bible says that he sought repentance with tears. I wonder what that means, sought repentance with tears. First of all, repentance is not just sorrow and regret. Shahi has a sermon, a very good sermon on repentance. It's not just sorrow. Godly sorrow works repentance, but repentance is not just sorrow, and repentance is not just regret. What happened? This was a man, this was a man that realized I've made a mistake and his brother was going to capitalize on that mistake and his brother was not going to let him out of the deal. His brother was going to take the birthright. The Bible says that Esau sought repentance but to no avail, found none, even with tears. It says he was rejected. Who rejected him? God? No. His physical father in the flesh rejected, overturning the deal they made. What's that an indication of? What's that an example of? And we're, and we're through. That's an example. How many times we talk about the consequence of sin? If that is not an example of the consequences of sin, I don't know what is. That is a perfect example of how if he had a, any sin whatsoever that God would have forgiven or whatever it is, if it's in this life, God forgives us when we make mistakes. God forgives us when we repent. This was somebody that was really sorry. He sought repentance with tears, but he found none. In other words, nobody was going to uh, overturn their deal. And it was confirmed with their father. I'm going to tell you something. We can sin in our life. We can mess up, and I mean mess up, and God will forgive us, but sometimes, now, now the great thing is, the great thing is when we mess up, and we have time, and we can fix it. That's the great thing. We can change our ways, be forgiven, and fix it. The problem, though, is when we change our ways, and God forgives us, so from a spiritual matter, everything's fine, but then the consequence still exists. That's the problem. That's why we say make good choices. That's why we say stay on the path. That's why we say make straight the paths of your feet. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.